join me in prayer again? Father, unless the Lord builds the house, the builder builds in vain. And unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman watches in vain. And unless the Lord gives power to his word in the hearts of his people, the preacher preaches in vain. And so, Lord, we pray that you would come and apply that which you have written for our instruction in your word, that Christ might be formed in us. We pray it in his name. Amen. I haven't had a chance to listen to Tom Tarrant's sermon from last week. I understand he was gunning for my job. So if I have a couple duds in a row, you know who to call. Uh, it was wonderful to be back. We were up in Pennsylvania with the church we, we came from. It was our first time back celebrating with my good friend who's now been installed as the lead pastor there. So it was great to see friends, but wonderful to be back. Uh, left, it was bittersweet, but left feeling like we are in the right place where God has called us. So we're wonderful to be back. We're back in the book of Galatians this morning. We'll be in the rest of Galatians now, basically to the end of February. We'll push through and finish the book. Uh, the passage this morning, Galatians 4, 8 to 20, serves as a, a bridge into the next uh, kind of major section of the book. Now, up to this point, Paul's focus has been on defending and explaining uh, his message of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That was ground zero of the trouble in Galatia. It was the thing that, that caused him to write this letter. And now what he's going to do is he's going to begin to, to move to address the consequences of rejecting that doctrine. That it's, it's nothing less than exchanging freedom for slavery. And so that sets the agenda for what he's going to write about from here in, in chapter 4, verse 11, up until chapter 5, verse 12, these, these themes of slavery and freedom. If we're going to summarize the, the main point of that section of the book, it would be something like this. Abandoning justification by faith only leads back to slavery, but embracing it leads to freedom. Uh, the anchor verse for this whole section then would be Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now, as Paul begins to, to turn into this topic, he, he pauses. He's been swimming in the depths of these crucial biblical and theological arguments about justification. But now he, he comes up for air, as it were, and as he does so, he takes the opportunity to once again address the Galatians directly and earnestly. Because remember, Paul's agenda here is not to write some sort of abstract theological treatise. He's not just using the occasion of the, the trouble in Galatia to wax eloquent about precise doctrinal distinctions. Rather, he's writing out of a deep pastoral concern 
for these congregations of Christians that he knew personally. His preaching had led to their conversion. His ministry had planted their churches. This was not just business. It was intensely personal for Paul. We hear that in the way that he speaks. He says, I I fear for you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, my dear children, how I wish I could be with you. The way he pauses and addresses the Galatians here shows us something about the difference between Paul and the false teachers that were troubling the Galatians. They're not just at odds because they have two different gospels, one true, the other false. That certainly is true. But they're also at odds because they have two vastly different goals. And this brief respite in Paul's argument, it's not so much that he can catch his breath, it's not so much that the, to let the Galatians catch up to him, but rather it's, it's about renewing this personal appeal that he has to his friends. He stops to remind them that all he is doing and saying here is because he loves them. It's Paul and not his opponents who are genuinely concerned for their spiritual welfare. And so Paul illustrates here what he commends in Timothy in Philippians 2, as we read earlier. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone else looks to their own interests and not those of Christ Jesus. And that, in so many words, is what Paul is communicating in this transitional passage in Galatians 4. What we have here is an example of what it looks like to be genuinely concerned for the spiritual welfare of others. And this is something that's necessary for all of us who are a part of the church to consider. Because in the church, it's not just the pastor, but all the people who are expected to show genuine care and concern for one another's spiritual lives. And so we have an eminent and an inspired example of that here in Paul's dealings with the Galatians. So the question we're thinking about this morning is this. What does it look like for Christians to be genuinely concerned for one another's spiritual welfare? If it's something that's expected of us in the church, what does that look like? I want to propose three lessons we learn from this text, from Paul's example. Being genuinely concerned for the spiritual welfare of others means that you're committed to tell them the truth that you're willing to endure relational pain for telling them the truth, and that you're motivated by a desire for their sanctification by the truth. And I'll repeat those as we we go. But first, being genuinely concerned for the spiritual welfare of others means that you are committed to telling them the truth. You're committed to telling them the truth. Verse 16 Paul questions the Galatians. He says, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? That phrase, telling you the truth, is actually just one Greek verb, and it's a word that's only used twice in the New Testament. Once here, and the other time is in Ephesians 4.15. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. 
And I think we hear verses like this, and we hear the idea of telling the truth or speaking the truth, and we think it's just synonymous with saying hard but true things that need to be said. So we use it, it seems to me, primarily in reference to confronting sin. Like, look, brother, you, this is hard, but I got to speak the truth in love. I have to tell you the truth. And as necessary as that might be, I don't think that's precisely what Paul has in mind here. Or in Ephesians 4. Because both in Galatians 4 and Ephesians 4, the primary focus is not necessarily confronting people with hard truths, but rather speaking the truth of the gospel, speaking the truth of the word of God. It's speaking the capital T truth. That's the truth that Paul is speaking to the Galatians here. To tell the truth or to speak the truth is just another way of saying to exhort and encourage one another with the truth of God's word. And I say that to emphasize that that speaking the truth in love or or telling the truth is not limited to confronting or correcting sin. It certainly includes that, but it means more than that. It means ministering to others with the word of God, not only for correction and rebuke, but also for teaching and training in righteousness. It means not only using the word to admonish one another when necessary, but also for edification and encouragement and consolation. What does that look like? One of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways that we see it worked out is in verses 8, 9, and 10. Let's look there again. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? So much of our discipleship, so much of our our telling the truth, our discipling one another, speaking the truth of God's word to one another, really comes down to reminding others who they once were and who they now are. We see this repeatedly in Paul's letters, where he calls his readers to pursue holiness and sanctification. He does so not with guilt-laden rebukes or bare commands, but constant reminders of who they once were and who they now are, which in turn should shape and motivate how they live now. A few examples from Paul's letters, Ephesians 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. You were dead, now you're alive. Or later in Ephesians 2, remember that at one time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were far off. You were excluded from God's people, but now you have been brought near. Now you are included in God's people. Ephesians 5, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Or 1 Corinthians 6, 
Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We could go on. Paul does this repeatedly through his letters. It seems to be one of his favorite strategies for teaching and encouraging his readers to pursue Christ-likeness. Not first and foremost by just telling them the commands that they should follow, but by reminding them who they were and who they now are in Christ. So Paul tells the Galatians, at one time, you did not know God, and you were slaves. But now, you are sons. We read about that earlier in Galatians 4. Now, you know God. Or perhaps more importantly, you are known by God. They're not enslaved. They're not under the law. They're not bound to obey it to earn righteousness. They are free. They are justified in Christ. And so they ought to live like it and reject whatever would draw them away from it. Notice that what he describes who they are here, he doesn't emphasize justification or eternal life or receiving the Spirit, or being adopted, or being heirs of God's blessing. Though all of these things are true about the salvation that's granted to us in Christ. And all of these things have been things that he's already talked about in the book of Galatians. But instead, he here describes who they now are as those who know God and are known by God. And that's something for us to stop and reflect on for a moment, because To be saved is not merely some cosmic verdict. It's to know God and to in turn be known by God. When Paul uses this terminology of knowing, he doesn't have in mind cognitive awareness or familiarity. He's thinking in terms of personal or relational knowledge. It's not a knowledge of intellect, but of intimacy. It's really just another way of speaking about love. To know God means to love God. To be known by God is to be loved by God. So friends, we must ask ourselves, do we we know God? And can we say with confidence that we are known by God? That's a crucial question that every person must answer. Eternal life, Jesus said, is found in knowing the only true God. And on the last day, those who are sent away into the eternal fire are those to whom Jesus says, I never knew you. Do you know him? Does he know you? To some, it might seem presumptuous to say yes. You might be willing to say that you think you're saved. Maybe you're not quite ready to say that you know God. It seems too personal. Salvation seems much more transactional. Perhaps we're more comfortable saying that we know God, but but we're not quite sure that he knows us. We've met him a few times, but we're not sure that he remembers us. 
We're hopeful he does. We are fearful he doesn't. But in any event, we're not certain. But that's, that's not where the Bible leaves us. As Paul tells the Galatians here, he tells us that all who are justified by faith and made alive by the Spirit and adopted in Christ know and are known by God. We come to know and be known by God through Christ. And you may feel like you don't know him well or know him as well as you should. And you may feel that you are not known by him, but that feeling doesn't change the fact that to be saved through Christ is to come to know God, and more importantly, to be known by him, loved and marked out as his own. If you're a Christian, you know God, and God knows you, and growth in your spiritual life comes through coming to know him more. If you're hearing me say this and you are not confident that you know God or that you are known by God, then I have good news for you. You can know God and you can be known by God. And now track with me. And you can know that you know God and are known by God. Eternal life is found in knowing God, and the way we come to know God is by knowing Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. As the Apostle John wrote, God has given us eternal life. Eternal life, which is found in knowing God. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. We might say, whoever has the Son knows God. Whoever does not have the Son does not know God. And then he goes on to say, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You with me? To have eternal life is to know God and be known by Him. And the way that we come to know and be known by Him is through His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you know Jesus, that is, if you have the Son, if you believe in the name of His Son, then you will know God and have eternal life. And on the basis of that divine promise, then you may know, not sometime in the future, but now that you have eternal life and that you are known by God. Do you know God? Does He know you? And friends, I plead with you, don't stop until you can answer that question confidently. Yes. Now, Paul doesn't bring this up here in order to scare the Galatians into thinking that they might not be Christians. Paul's actually confident that they have come to know God. That's what allows him to to press them on the utter foolishness of turning away from the gospel he preached to them and embracing the false gospel of his opponents. Paul's commitment to capital T truth-telling also takes the form of pointing out the absurdity of the path that they are on. Look again, verse 9. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? 
This might be a bit closer to what we normally think of when we think of speaking the truth or telling the truth. Paul issues a warning. If you abandon the truth of the gospel that I preach to you, this is what the consequences are. To do so is as ludicrous as it would be for someone who was once a slave after having been liberated to choose to return to the bondage of slavery. We all have blind spots in our lives. We all need one another, not only to remind us of who we were and who we are, but also, when the circumstances demand it, to warn us of what we will be if we continue down the path that we are on. God the Spirit has chosen to use His people not only to instruct and encourage one another, but also to correct and protect one another. And so, what ways are you committed to this ministry of truth speaking with other believers? How are you intentionally helping others with God's word that they might follow Jesus? That's, that's what discipleship is, just stripped down to its core. That's the, the work of ministry to which all of God's people are called. How are you seeking to be used by God to speak the truth of his word to others? And how are you seeking out others that they might speak the truth of God's word into your life? This isn't radical. This is just basic Christianity. It's the kind of regular word-centered relationship that should characterize our church and every true church of Jesus Christ. It's something for us to continue to strive for, to be a, a church, to be a people who are patiently, prayerfully, intentionally ministering the word of God to one another for our mutual upbuilding. That's, that's what discipleship is. It's not a set of, of programs. It's a, a network of relationships in which we are speaking the truth to one another that we might all become more like Jesus. Now, caring for the spiritual well-being of those around you doesn't stop with a commitment to speaking the truth because telling people the truth, and especially when it involves admonishing and challenging them with God's word, may not always result in them having thanked you profusely for being used by God in their lives. It brings us to the second lesson that we learn from this passage that being genuinely concerned for another's spiritual welfare means that you're willing to endure the relational pain that comes with telling them the truth. You're willing to endure the relational pain for telling them the truth. Verses 12 to 16 are some of the most emotionally charged words in the book. We might well imagine the leaves of Paul's letter, the ink pockmarked with tears that he shed as he wrote. He remembered the love the Galatians had shown him, how they received him, how they listened to him, they received the word of God from him, how they sacrificed for him. Remembers the precious bonds of their fellowship. And yet then how quickly they're willing to flip to these false teachers, embrace a false and powerless gospel. How quickly they doubt Paul's sincerity, legitimacy, and love to the point that they treat him as if he had become their most deadly enemy. 
Paul's love for the Galatians, his, his genuine concern for their spiritual welfare, meant that he was willing to risk their displeasure and endure the pain of this relational strife in order to seek what he knew was ultimately in their best interest. And as is so often the case, his faithful commitment to confront that what is endangering those that he loves brings a response not of gratitude, but indignance. Perhaps it's not surprising then that later in the passage, Paul uses parental, really maternal language to describe his relationship with the Galatians. He describes himself as a mother who is again in the agony of childbirth, waiting for her children to have life. You who are parents know well that what your children think is in their best interest and what you think is in their best interest are not always aligned. Teenagers, I'm sure you would agree what you think is in your best interest and what your parents think is in your best interest are not always the same thing. And you don't need to be a parent to know this because at one time we were all children and I'm willing to bet most of us probably experienced something like this. But a decade of my life, from my mid-teens to my mid-twenties, I was pretty certain that I knew exactly what was best for me. And when what I thought came into conflict with what anyone else thought, and especially my parents, I figured I knew better than they did. Or at least I was more willing to bet on my own desires than on their wisdom. Now, they're not perfect, but as it turns out, they were correct in the vast majority of cases. They not only desired my good, they also knew better what would bring about that good. I didn't like it at the time, but I can say now that I was often foolish and I would have done well to listen to them and not to get angry when they stood in my way. It's the same in the church. We may think we know what's best for us, have no interest in anyone telling us, hey, this is something that you should consider doing or I'm concerned for you. You should think about what you're, what you're doing. We might think we know what's best for us, but the Bible tells us that our hearts are by nature wicked and deceitful. Like I said before, we all have blind spots. We need the humility to admit that. We need, we need others to help us see what we can't. It's one of the great benefits of being a part of a local church, where we commit not just to an organization or an institution, but to a family, to a people. Not as nameless faces, but as individuals. We commit to one another to speak truth for one another's spiritual good. And if that's going to work, it has to include a willingness to be disliked, if necessary, in order that we might pursue what is in the best interest of others' spiritual lives. Certainly not that we should pursue being disliked by others, but sometimes what God calls us to do will lead to that kind of pain. Perhaps you can think of a time when a Christian friend spoke truth to you, challenged you, corrected you in some way like Paul did with the Galatians. I certainly can. I can think of a very specific time when God used a friend of mine to tell me the truth and pull me back from the brink of ruin. 
I was on a destructive path with, with no desire to change. My conscience was, was seared and insensitive. But thanks be to God that I had a faithful friend who was willing to risk the relational cost of speaking the truth because his love for me and his desire for my well-being outweighed his desire for my favor. That conversation didn't lead to any immediate change, but I am confident that God used it to bring about the conviction and repentance that was necessary in my heart. And while in the short term I was annoyed with him, to put it mildly, in the long run, I am profoundly grateful for his love and boldness to challenge me with the truth, something that I have thanked him for more than once. So I encourage you, especially if, if you need to have one of those conversations, be faithful, be willing to endure that pain. Don't be discouraged if the response is not immediate transformation, immediate repentance. Entrust that to the Lord and wait upon Him. And your faithfulness to speak the truth may well bear fruit down the road in ways that you wouldn't have imagined. On the flip side of this, I think we also need to recognize that when people come to us, people who love us, who desire our good and our growth and speak truth to us, we, we need to respond in humility. Somebody comes and says, I think you have this blind spot. Your response can't be, I don't have a blind spot there. By definition, you don't know that you have a blind spot there. It might be good to listen. It might be harder because we like to think of ourselves as the ones who have the truth and speak it to others. That's a much more comfortable position to be in. We don't like to think of ourselves as needing to be corrected or helped by others. That seems weak. Welcome to the church. We are all weak and needy. If you're here and you say, I don't, I don't, I'm not weak, I'm not needy. You're just ignoring what the Bible says about humanity. We are all weak. We have a strong Christ. We are all needy. And we have a great Christ for our need. The sooner we realize that we are weak and in need of God's help through one another, the better it will be for our spiritual health. We need to be as willing to receive the truth spoken as we are to speak it. And as willing as we must be to speak the truth to others and to endure that relational pain that may come from that commitment, we must likewise be willing and in fact eager to have the truth spoken to us. We must be resolved with God's help not to respond with anger, arrogance, or self-justification, but with humility and thankfulness that God would be so gracious as to use those who love us to be the agents of transformation in our lives. We do well to remember the proverb, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. I would add this caveat just because someone may respond negatively to your truth speaking, it doesn't mean that you are right and they are wrong. It doesn't mean that you are like Paul and they are just 
stiff-necked, resisting the Holy Spirit like the Galatians. Sometimes we may be right in the way that we, in what we say, but wrong in either how we say it or why we say it. It's all too easy to become quite self-righteous in this, thinking that the most important thing is just that the truth is spoken, that our motive and manner in doing so really don't matter all that much. And all the while, we congratulate ourselves on how valiant for truth we are, like Paul. Of course, that's not the example that Paul gives us at all here. We're called to speak the truth in love, and that is not just in a loving way, but also from a heart that is genuinely seeking the other person's good. That brings us to the third and final lesson we learn from Paul's example here. Being genuinely concerned for the spiritual welfare of others means that your motivation is a desire for their sanctification by the truth. Your motivation is a desire for their sanctification by the truth. The Galatians uh, had apparently become somewhat jaded with regards to Paul. And they might well have received his admonition and appeal here and throughout the letter as just a, a manipulative trick to get them back on his side. Say, oh, Paul, you're only writing this now because suddenly we're, we're following these other pastors. Where, where, where were you before? You just want to get us back so you can count us in the numbers you send back to headquarters. Well, that's not the case at all. And in fact, Paul says it's quite the opposite. Look at verse 17. Those people, that is the false teachers, are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. And here he exposes his opponent's motives. They want to win you over so that, they, that you may have zeal for them. In other words, they're looking for a platform, for followers, for adherents, for influence. They don't really care about the Galatians. They just want to poach them away from Paul. So they can brag about having more followers than he does. Let's say the false teachers are pursuing the Galatians not out of love for them, and certainly not out of love for the truth, but rather out of love for themselves. That's an important link of the chain in, in Paul's argument in Galatians, because he's not only seeking to expose his opponent's gospel as false, he's also exposing their motives as deceitful and selfish. Paul, on the other hand, shows here that his concern for the Galatians is not motivated by love for himself or his reputation, nor is it motivated merely out of a love for the truth, though he certainly is intensely concerned to preserve the unadulterated truth of the gospel. But he's also and crucially motivated by a sincere love for the Galatians themselves. So there's two ways, at least two ways, in which our motivation for speaking the truth or telling the truth to others can be off base. And the first is what we see illustrated by the false teachers, motivated out of love for self. But the second way is to be motivated by a love for truth that is severed from a love for God's people and a desire to seek their good. False teachers are concerned for their own interest, but Paul, on the other hand, is concerned not only for the gospel, but for the Galatians' souls, which is, of course, what Christ himself is most chiefly concerned with. Here again, he illustrates what he commends in Timothy, one who is genuinely concerned for their welfare, for everyone else looks out for their own interests and not those of Christ Jesus. 
But Paul is looking out for the interests of Christ by showing concern not only for the truth, but for the spiritual health of the Galatians. The contrast between Paul and his opponents is again evident here. Verse 17, those people are zealous to win you over so that you may have zeal for them. But then verse 19, Paul addresses them. He says, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul's desire and motivation is to see Christ formed in them. It's not, I want you to not have zeal for them so that you have zeal for me. It's, I don't want you to have zeal for them because I want Christ to be formed in you. That is what I care about. What you think of me is less important and that Christ is formed in you, which is just another way of talking about the Galatians' sanctification, their spiritual growth in Christ-likeness. It's part of the reason that he is at such pains to preserve the truth of the gospel among them is that a false gospel cannot save and it cannot sanctify. A false gospel peddled by Paul's opponents demands that the Galatians be obedient to the law, both to be saved and to be changed, and, and to the point that they are they're considering the careful observance of Jewish religious dates, the calendar. We saw that in verse 10. He says, you're, you're observing days and months and years. These things that might appear to be wise, appear to be religious, but really have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. From the outside, it might seem like the false teachers are the ones who are really concerned with holiness. But their false gospel is powerless to make anyone holy. Apart from the sin-forgiving, slave-freeing work of Christ crucified and risen, justifying sinners by grace through faith, our hearts are left dead and hardened and unmalleable. Pursuing holiness in this state would be like trying to press a, a seal onto a cool piece of wax. You might have the right pattern, the right image, but no matter how hard you press, the wax is only going to crack and break. But justified in Christ and indwelled by the Spirit, our hard hearts are melted into repentance by His grace. That we might be poured into the mold of Christ-likeness and be conformed increasingly to the same image. The, The wax of our hearts melted by the fire of the gospel becomes a place where Christ's image can now be pressed and stamped and formed like a seal. And Paul's deepest desire for the Galatians is not that they would, they would love him, but that, he would, that they would know and love and become more like Jesus. The only way that happens is through beholding the truth about Christ in his word, which is why Paul is at such pains to defend the gospel. You see the difference in motivation. Not only preserve the truth of the word, but promote the sanctification and spiritual growth of God's people through it. When we speak the truth of God's word to others, we must ask ourselves about our motives. It's our desire to prove ourselves right, to prove others wrong, to gain influence, to make people like us more, or to make people more like us. Do you speak the truth because you want to be able to say, I told you so? 
Or are we driven by a desire for the spiritual good and sanctification of those around us? That's Paul's driving motivation for the Galatians. And so he is willing to speak the truth and to do so with the knowledge that at the time, the Galatians may well consider him an enemy for it. But he does so because he cares about their souls more than he cares about their favor. It should be the same for us as well. We're part of this church not only because it benefits us spiritually, though I pray that it does, but even more because we desire to be used of God to help one another follow Jesus. Being a Christian is not a solo sport. We need one another. In this, we are just following in the footsteps of our Lord, who was so genuinely concerned for us that he did not look to his own interests, but to ours. And who, as he testified to the truth, was willing to be misunderstood and mistreated and maligned and ultimately murdered by us in order that he might accomplish that which was for our ultimate spiritual welfare. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your love you have not left us to languish in our sin, to grope our way towards you, but that you have, you have come to us in your Son. You have come to seek and save the lost. Grant that we might be a people who so, who so illustrate that kind of love, the kind of care for one another, that sacrificial love for one another. That as people come into this body, I would say, see how they love one another. Surely God is among them. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You stand now as we sing our closing song together.